In late November 1938, 24-year-old Wilder McGowan was lynched in Wiggins, Mississippi. An elderly white woman said that a light-skinned black man had raped and robbed her. A mob of 200 white males with bloodhounds chased, captured, and killed McGowan. The NAACP did not believe the story. They investigated and reported that they had proven that McGowan was innocent. Among other things, he was dark-skinned and was nowhere in the area when the crime was committed. Apparently, the actual reason McGowan was lynched, hung from a tree, was because the city's white youth had some pent-up anger. They were outraged and frustrated that the black people in the town refused to be intimidated by their customary displays of racism. This is Dr. Catherine Bancole Medina with the invention of racism. As you know, the goal of this podcast series is to share the subtle and not so subtle nuances of racism from the past into our 21st century. Understanding and speaking the truth about racism is the first step toward combating and ultimately eliminating it. This episode explores rituals of racism, false accusations, and the attack on Black Lives Matter. Three years ago, the National Registry of Exonerations published the report, Race and Wrongful Convictions in the United States. Essentially, the report found, through the critical examination of exonerations over nearly three decades, that African Americans were more likely to be wrongly accused of a crime. This includes the crimes of murder, sexual assault, and drug offenses. Data suggests that blacks are more likely to be wrongly convicted because they are falsely accused or through misconduct in the criminal justice system. The study of exoneration is important. Black men and women are predominantly overrepresented in the criminal justice system, and black men are more likely than white men to be racially profiled, coarse, and imprisoned. This is not because black people 13% of the population commit crimes exponentially. This is often advanced by apologists who deny institutional racism and the racially disproportionate incarceration rates. This speaks to embedded racial stereotypes about crime, and it is because there is a perfect storm of circumstances fueled by institutional racism that permits and sustains this carceral abuse. We don't even have enough time to begin to discuss all of the ways empirically that the scales are tipped against African Americans with respect to over-policing, discriminatory arrests, and unfair sentencing and convictions. But at this volatile moment, the nation needs to make the time. False accusations are part of the profound ritual of racism. The ritual of racism is the public and private symbolic act in the tradition of white nationalism that supports racist ideology and hegemonic power. 
This ritual ushers black people into the vortex of the American criminal justice system, or as the late political scientist Ron Walters referred to it in his book, White Nationalism, Black Interests, the American criminal punishment system, emphasizing the polar difference between justice and punishment in the United States. So I ran across the following case by chance while researching some totally unrelated material for yet another project. This past June, 2020, a 63-year-old white Virginia woman by the name of Gladys Townsend told police that she had been assaulted that evening by a black man and a black woman. To be clear, all of this information was first reported by the Richmond Times-Dispatch and circulated through multiple public reports at the end of June. According to these reports, the assault took place in the Richmond, Virginia suburbs of Powhatan County, which is a small district with less than 30,000 people. Um, violent crime happens, but it is quite rare. And black people make up about 16% of the county's population. Though Townsend said that she did not know the black couple who assaulted her, they were strangers. She was able to give a description of them and the car they drove. Based on the information routinely channeled by the far right, this is the contemporary fear of white Americans in the suburbs, that elderly white people, females no less, would be randomly attacked on the street by blacks from the city or those black people who had newly relocated to the suburbs, presumably living in subsidized public housing. According to this narrative, this kind of crime houses unknown dangers. In addition to being beaten, this woman might have been robbed, raped, or killed. In this Virginia County, you can carry a concealed handgun with a permit. And from county board meeting public comments, people in this county take their Second Amendment rights very seriously. Purportedly, after Townsend's report, a Facebook page was created offering a $1,000 reward for the capture of this black couple. The problem with this story is, as you can surmise, the assault never took place. It never happened. And this, would not, this was not your average 911 anti-black hate call. Within days, law enforcement discovered that Townsend had given a false report. She had not been attacked by a black couple on the street. There was no black couple. There was no car. She admitted that she had lied about the entire event. Okay, so now this is not a new phenomenon. There is a significant modern history of white people framing blacks for crimes that they did not commit because it is convenient for them to do so in the preservation of white racial dominance. This long history includes blacks being subjected to lynching bees, the quaint name given for the leisurely killing of blacks for false crimes, no crimes, 
and the denial of due process altogether. Remember the Scottsboro Boys trial in 1931, where nine black youth were immediately arrested, charged, and convicted of raping two white women on a train headed for Paint Rock, Alabama. Eight boys were sentenced to death, with the youngest receiving a life sentence. The fight for justice would span decades, and there was no evidence of rape, and the nine boys did not receive a fair trial. Like the Scottsboro Boys case, the watershed murder of 14-year-old Emmett Till in 1955 catalyzed the modern civil rights movement. Till was killed for no crime except crossing paths with a white woman in Money, Mississippi. Over the years, it was always known that black people could be credibly falsely accused. In the fall of 1989, Charles Stewart in the city of Boston, Massachusetts, brought innocent black men to their knees with his harrowing tale that a black man had killed his pregnant wife. They had just left a child birthing class. Stewart's brother knew about the lie and Stewart himself committed suicide. In that same year, there was the horrific Central Park jogger assault and rape case, also 1989, which resulted in the false conviction of five black teens. I was there. They were effectively exonerated in 2002, more than a decade later, through confession and DNA evidence. And I also remember Susan Smith in Union, South Carolina, who killed her two young sons. They were barely toddlers. This was in 1994, and she blamed it on a fictitious black man. Well, in 2001, a 19-year-old white female co-ed at Iowa State University in Ames by the name of Katie Robb said four armed black men kidnapped and ganged raped her in a wooded area in broad daylight. The day after the report, she admitted that she had lied. And I, and I need to pause here for just a moment. In 2002, Rob gave a rather bizarre interview to a black male reporter where she admitted to making the false rape report and apologized while heavily emphasizing that she didn't want to be perceived as racist and discriminatory. But she stated that the public didn't know the whole story. At the beginning of the interview, she, she asked the reporter to, quote, turn off your tape recorder and don't write it down. I will tell you what really happened right before, end quote. We still don't actually know what she meant by that. She never explained. Nor do we know why she accused four black men of a terrible crime. But... She did mention that a black male student had harassed and called her a bitch at a party. Rob, who felt that she was victimized by the media, pled guilty 
and received probation. And four years ago, in a case that, like so many, strains the imagination, in 2016, a white female Jackson, Georgia police officer shot herself in the stomach and reported in great detail that a black man fired the shot and had fled the scene. She gave her colleagues a description of that black man. He was described as being well over 200 pounds, six feet tall, and he had slick back hair. He wore black jogging pants and notably a fluorescent green shirt. This description helped police to create a suspect sketch and a photo lineup. She had identified Rodriguez Scott from that lineup. Then two weeks later, she admitted that the story was a lie. And this past August 2020, Ronnie Long of Concord, North Carolina, had a conviction for raping and robbing a white woman overturned. He was convicted for this crime in 1976. And now he has spent 44 years in prison and now he is waiting for a pardon from the governor. So why would Townsend, an elderly Virginia woman, well, or any, anyone else for that matter, invent such a story today? What purpose does this serve? Of course, we know that these are truly rhetorical questions. In a deeply divided country, still living in the original trajectory of racism and white supremacy, we are witnessing the new redemption movement, a reboot of the aftermath of the American Civil War and Reconstruction. This was where Democratic Party redeemers embarked on a campaign to resurrect the defeated South. and to reestablish absolute control over the black population. Now, the police were very concerned about Townsend's false report because, well, the national protests over black lives and videos of violent police takedown methods and fatal arrests. By the summer of 2020, no city in the United States wanted to be Minneapolis, Minnesota, Louisville, Kentucky, or Kenosha, Wisconsin. These cities bore the brunt of the atrocities committed against George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Jacob Blake. But there were varieties of Black Lives Matter protesters in Richmond, along with the appearance of Boogaloo Boy white supremacists and other far-right extremist groups. This white woman in Powhatan County, Virginia, said that she had created the story and filed a false police report because she was just upset. Purportedly, she was upset over the Black Lives Matter protests taking place across the country and in the Richmond area. This general reason was not made public initially, and we don't yet know the actual details of her distress over Black Lives Matter. Of course, potentially volatile information from police reports are carefully constructed and evaluated before being made available to the public. Information is sometimes held back 
in the media frame for these kinds of cases, uh, especially racialized cases because of the ongoing legal proceedings and because it protects the interest and image of the community. Townsend was charged with and pled guilty to a class one misdemeanor, filing a false police report. And at this point, we can see more of the ways that whiteness is protected. She was sentenced to 12 months in jail. Six months of this time was suspended. And it is supposed that with good behavior, she will complete the sentence in three months, probably by the time this podcast is published. Her lawyer argued that she had no criminal history and suffered from the psychological issues of bipolar disorder, anxiety, and depression, as well as other health concerns. The widely distributed articles on the story solidified the effort to gain sympathy for Townsend. Her attorney argued for a suspended sentence because her ruse, according to him, didn't use up a lot of police resources. And she confessed to the fraudulent story fairly early in the investigation. However, nearly everyone involved in the case cited their serious and somber concerns over her false claims. But this did not necessarily include any articulated care for the black community. By most accounts, they were protective of the county's image, the underlying idea that Black Lives Matter protests in other cities was the real problem because more of these rallies might bring black people and unrest to their area. Like Townsend, they were extremely concerned about the Black Lives Matter movement. After all, Townsend's crime was against the police not the black community at large. They spoke hypothetically about how this false claim could have negatively impacted their community and society overall. Yet authorities admitted there was no evidence whatsoever that a black couple even existed. So this really was about black people being falsely accused of a violent crime by a white person, as well as their fears over the Black Lives Matter activists. This, like everything we have seen, was a ritual of racism. The performance of historic racial social control and the power-based articulation of white identity. As an intuitive champion for whiteness, Townsend was intentional in her action. She didn't need to join a group. She was not weak and helpless. She could not accomplish, she could accomplish this act on her own. To date, no one has cited insanity as a causal factor. She could do something about, or at least express her anger toward the Black Lives Matter movement. She could use the power of whiteness and womanhood to gain sympathy, attention, and have her story believed. There was that $1,000 reward for the capture of this fictitious black couple. In this ritual, it is understood that law enforcement would naturally align with her. After all, in racist thought, blackness is always perceived as an existential threat to white society. And racist reasoning recognizes a convergence of support, 
what I discussed in my book, uh, World to Come, as social network conservation and communities of care. This idea has nothing to do with social media, but it is the automatic support and reflexive shielding of white enclaves. Perhaps she didn't consider that evidence would be needed to support her claim in this somewhat rare conclusion. This is because police would be under community-based scrutiny precisely because of the Black Lives Matter movement. Yet, there was a desire to plainly implicate a black couple, any black couple, in a serious crime. She knew the consequences. She knew what the consequences would be for them. And these days, the outcomes could be injurious or fatal for black people. And this is before they even face assault charges and pretrial cash bail incarceration. This was meant to be a blow to or a way to express her resentment toward the Black Lives Matter movement and their demands for justice and human rights. However, to truly understand this case, conduct a simple counterfactual exercise. Imagine what the situation would look like through the lens of racial exchange if the victim of the alleged random assault from a fictitious white couple was a 63-year-old black woman with the same psychosocial profile. For me, the consequences would have been very different. Keep in mind how the ritual of racism unfolds here. The accusers genuinely feel entitled to make these false allegations. Further, black people are accused of some very heinous crimes, which guarantees that law enforcement officials will act swiftly. Note that false accusers provide intricate detail in relating the story of these imagined crimes. Perpetrators, barring mental illness, are also willing to engage in or become embroiled in the process of public lying, lying to the public. And then there is persistently a sense of consensus between the white accuser and law enforcement. Thus, the force of law, the mechanisms of justice, is typically used against the black victim. In keeping with the theory of white fragility by Professor Robin D'Angelo, the emotion of hurt feelings is perceived as a crime, a challenge to whiteness, and therefore the false accusation is justified as a defense. Not only is this ritual of racism immoral and unjust, it often houses false equivalence in terms of forms of human equality or equity. Finally, the white accusers are either not held criminally accountable or are minimally punished for making false allegations against black people. From the 1938 lynching of Wilder McGowan to the summer 2020 false accusation made by Gladys Townsend, the ritual of racism has been the attempt to amass power in order to create a world where black people are made the convenient scapegoats for white anger, 
frustration, and anxiety. Racist rituals and traditions can be eliminated by exposing them, by revealing the subtle signals and the grand gestures used to communicate the ideologies and the patterns of racial dominance. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Support for independent podcasts like The Invention of Racism is so critical at this moment. In the national and global effort to dismantle racism and to establish human equality, we need as many thoughtful and courageous voices as possible. If you believe in and appreciate this anti-racism podcast, continue to download, like, share, and support us. And I also encourage everyone to use their media platform to honestly analyze, examine, and to put an end to racism. If you are listening to this podcast series, then you already know. Discourse on racism is not for the faint of heart. I hope that you will continue to join me as I present key topics in the invention of racism.